All right. Questions, complaints, thoughts. Oh, Renee. My question is that um, you stated that two people entered the promised land. However, Moses, who didn't enter the promised land, he was saved, right? Yes, 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 yes. yes. Absolutely. Moses was saved, but Moses didn't enter the promised land. So there's, there's, yeah. And the kids of the parents who died in the wilderness, they entered the promised land. So, I mean, lots of people entered the promised land, but how many people who left Egypt actually got into the promised land? Two. Um, And Moses is kind of a special case. He's absolutely, and and you even think about God giving them 40 years of wandering. There's an opportunity. Who knows if some of them didn't repent, some of them didn't over those 40. Why not just kill them all immediately? Well, in part, because they still need to raise their kids. But also, every one of them's got 40 years to rethink what they did. And I don't think many of them did. There's not much indication to indicate many of them took opportunity of that. But there, there may well be others who, in God's grace and long-suffering and kindness, did not enter the promised land but will enter heaven. Right. But, yeah. Good question. No? Excellent. Oh, Bridget. So I was wondering, um, prophets like Jeremiah, were they still going to the temple and making sacrifices or like what yes. what did that look like as far as the few believers that there actually were? Yeah, yes. Let me give the example of Psalm 51 that I cited. Go to Psalm 51. Um, the Mosaic law was not optional for Israel. Just because uh, the Mosaic law in and of itself was insufficient for the people's wickedness, did not make it optional. So in Psalm 50, the the point I was making in Psalm 50 is that, 51, I mean, is that David's killed a man, committed adultery. There's no sacrifice for that. There's no, well, here's what you do. There's, you get put to death. You get stoned to death. And Nathan's already told David, you won't die. The Lord's taken away your iniquity. And so David in Psalm 51 makes this statement, right? Um, Pick it up in verse 13. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be returned to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So there's David's recognition. What I need right now in my compromised, corrupt situation, there's nothing the law has got for me. I need, I need to go to that heart rending, that heart circumcision. I need, I need a broken and contrite heart. But then keep reading. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. David's not saying that because what I need in my wickedness is something greater than the law has for me, the law, I'm I'm outside of the law. He intends to return to the sacrificial system. Then, once you've forgiven me, once you've restored me, I'm going to offer sacrifices just like the law says I should. Sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of praise, free will offerings. He just recognizes in his state the law's got nothing to help me out here. The law is not going to deal with my murder and adultery, right? But verse 19 removes any notion of thought that David is therefore somehow exempt from the Mosaic law. He, he needs to be forgiven and restored. And then as a forgiven, restored person, he will do what... So, so the law is in a sense a context by which people of faith could live out their faith. 
Here's a way to show you believe. Here's, here's what to do in trusting God. Because faith, as I've argued, is not some static thing. It, it bears fruit. It acts. So God gives the people of Israel things to act out. Their, and some of them seem like their whole purpose is just to make them look odd. I mean, I think the King James says a peculiar people. So don't cut your sideburns. Have tassels on your clothes. There's the food laws. And so at every point, God is giving the Israelites... You can do it God's way in faith or not God's way. You can dress God's way or not God's way. You can eat your meal God's way or not God's way. So it's important. You can't opt out of that. But doing those things doesn't make you right with God. And and doing those things isn't going to deal with your sin in a real and final sense. So no, Jeremiah should have been participating in the temple worship system. There's no reason to think he wouldn't be. Just as Jesus was. Jesus went up every year. If anyone could say, I don't need to do that, Jesus goes up. Luke makes it clear. Jesus' parents go up and offer the, uh, they redeem him. That's what the language, because you've, every firstborn child to open the womb, you have to go and pay, give a sacrifice for to redeem them because God owns all the firstborn coming out of Egypt. So Luke is meticulous in, in noting Jesus' parents, Mary and, and uh, Joseph, were, were absolutely faithful in keeping the law and doing all the things they're supposed to do under the law. Um, so you don't get any inclination doing this law is all this legalistic, nitpicky stuff. It's, again, Psalm 119, it's good, it's righteous, it's great. It doesn't have, it's not enough, because I'm so corrupt, but it's great. Does that... Um, so even if the priests and the leaders were not true followers, kind of yes. like with Jesus. Like yes. he was still going and doing it even though Absolutely. they weren't really representing yes. what Well, just as Jesus did. I mean, we know that Jesus did not have many res not have much respect for the Sadducees who controlled the temple worship system. They controlled the temple. And yet Jesus went up every year as the law commanded and he was the, the concept being it's it's kind of like the military notion you respect the uniform. Paul Paul does that, right? Um, he's they strike him and he says, you whitewashed tomb, God will strike you. You judge, you judge me according to law, you strike me contrary to the law. And they say, oh, it's the, it's the high priest. Would you speak that way? And Paul says, I did not know. It's written, you should not speak evil of a leader among your people. And I know some people think he's being sarcastic, but everything I get from, from Jesus and Paul, like, no, you respect the position. And you're functioning. God set this system up, and you're functioning in that system, and you may be held responsible to God. It's the same thing with kids, right? Even with wicked, unbelieving parents, God wants the kids to honor the parents because he made them parents as best as they can. And so they might stand in judgment for how they exercise the stewardship of their parenting. Well, it's the same thing with government, right? I mean, um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to take you over and, and don't resist him. He's God's servant. Paul writes Romans, Romans 13, and I think as best as I can do my math, Nero's reigning when he says he's your servant for good. So, no, you, you, the, the, compromise, the leadership being compromised doesn't remove someone from the obligation to endeavor to keep the law as faithfully as they could. Yeah. Good, good question. Lee. Oh, microphone for Lee. So even when Israel is as rotten and 
corrupt and kind of falling apart, there was always somebody to accept or work on the sacrifices. There was always like somebody on duty to yeah. kill, kill the animal or whatever. Yes, yes. Oh. As far as we can tell, this the temple sacrificial system was uninterrupted until until the Babylon until the Babylonian exile. Babylon it gets interrupted oh. big time when they go right. taken to Babylon. There's no temple and there's no sacrifices we're aware of while they're in Babylon. Um, the temple gets destroyed. The law gets lost. Well, no, that's that's also in the time of the kings, right? That's Hezekiah loses. The, so I, I start probably but during, the, but during the day of Jesus, well, they were doing sacrifices because yes. there were stuff for yeah, yeah. sale. Yeah, yeah. And so, but th that system then was broken at seventy A.D. Yes, I'm thinking. Okay. Yes, which is actually a really interesting point. In Hebrews eight. We can we can. We'll see if what other questions we have. I, I'll be very surprised if I didn't. I know I know at least some people who are being timid have questions, but. Um, I, I fully... Oh, my wife wants to say something now. It would have gotten interrupted in the intertestamental period, too, because that's when the Maccabees happened, that's right? when Antiochus Epiphanes offers a pig on an altar to Zeus in the temple? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So there are periods of time where it's interrupted, but it's, it's, it seems to be largely unbroken while they have a temple. God says he always has a remnant. Yes, he, there's always a remnant, yes. But the, but the point I'm trying to make is the remnant doesn't get to say, because everyone else is corrupt and wicked, we just are going to just love God here in our home. God's, here's how you respond in faith to what I've said. Here's what I want you to try to do. And Jesus keeps the law. And if anyone didn't need to keep the law, it was Jesus. He keeps the law perfectly. So it's not, this notion of all I have to do is love God in my heart, it doesn't matter what I do, is, is nonsense. And, and the New Testament and the Old Testament has nothing to have, will have nothing with it. Um, it's God giving us context to act out our faith. You, James, you show me your faith by what you do. Um, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And in James's day, there's an attempt to say, I believe and you have works. Uh-uh. Faith will produce works. You can see what you believe by what you do. Yes, Allison. Okay. How can we say that this covenant applies and falls to us when we're not Israel and over and over in the text, it says, like, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Mm -hmm. This will be for the house of Israel, yeah. and we're not Israel. Great. No, great. Fantastic question. Let me broaden that even further. Um, Dave Lample's teaching a class right now on, on eschatology, and one of the distinctives of our view of both eschatology, last things, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, we don't believe the church can rightly be called Israel, and we don't believe that any passage written in Israel is therefore written to us. There are there are people, covenant theologians, who believe that the church has, and there's different ways of saying it, replaced, um, become, um, is true, or spiritual Israel. We, we don't believe that. Totally good question. Why, why would a passage? Well, the first would be, the author of Hebrews quotes it and cites it to us. But the category for this, let's go to Romans um, 10. Because one of the distinctives of the new covenant that's lost on us is that totality language. There was always a remnant in Israel, and yet the unbelieving dominant portion always determined the fate of Israel. <laughs> and it took with them the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So, 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 so uh, Jeremiah gets taken down, captive down to uh, Egypt by some, some jerks who grab him. And so there's always this believing remnant, and the believing remnant gets disciplined with the unbelieving majority. And so part of this language is like there's going to come a day in the future with Israel where all of you all 
are going to know me. And all of you all are going to have new hearts. So there always were some, a sprinkling of some. Um, we, we have that lost on us because we don't deal with a national identity. So anyway, Romans, um, actually Romans 11. Romans 11, not 10. Um, okay, verse 11. 11, 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? The they here is ethnic national Israel. They've stumbled. Um, actually, let's go back further. Let's go back um, to the uh, beginning of 11. I asked, then, has God rejected his people? Um, which is the, I don't want to straw man anything. Seb here? No. Okay, you can correct. Okay. okay, I can speak freely then. Okay. Um, and I can say Augustine or Augustine, either way. Okay. Um, he's in the sound booth. He'll just speak through the speakers. Okay. Um, <laughs> So the question has, so to, to broaden out even further to the question you were asking, what I was saying, there are many people, many people who I benefit from reading. Most of the, almost all of the Protestants and the Reformers and the Puritans who founded our country believed that the church is new, true, spiritual, restored, in some sense, Israel. Um, that's the whole city on a hill thing, you know? Um, and Paul asked that question, and so that under that view, Israel's rejection of Jesus was so absolute, final, and significant that when Jesus says to them, your house has left you desolate, for this reason the kingdom of God will be taken to the ethnoi, bearing its fruit, that that is, I'm done with Israel, Israel can now, under this view, they're welcome to join the church, but I'm working in the church now, the church is my new Israel, my new people, and sure, Jews are welcome to enter, but they enter just like everybody else. Well, Paul asked that question here. Has God rejected his people? By no means. And to make it clear that he means ethnic Israel, his people. For I am myself an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says to of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. And what is God's reply to him? But I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, Grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their cable become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So they, they stumbled, no doubt. They, they rejected their Messiah. They put him to death. Is there no recovery from that? Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So to make Israel jealous. So the answer to your question, Allison, would be this. What God has promised to Israel, which is still yet future for Israel in a national sense. We'll close by looking at Zechariah, where we will see this happen. He's provoking Israel to jealousy by giving it to dirty, rotten Gentiles like you and me. So that's the basis by which we, we can receive, because God has said he is. Not because, so, so, so as I take Allison's objection or question is taken well, which is we ought not to just go read every passage written to Israel and say, that's written to me. Like, I know the plans I have for you, plans for well-being and not for, that's about the return from Babylon, right? If my people, if my people will humble their heart, 
that's about the temple and restoring the Israel to the land. And that's not for us. So we need warrant. We need reason to take a passage written to Israel and directly apply it to us. Now, I'd say Hebrews 8 gives us that direct warrant. And so we get in principle that God is intending to give some of the blessings of Israel to the church. So we're, we got a category here for, hey, some of the good things, some of the promises God's given to Israel, he's giving to us. Um, and so we read, now if their trespass means riches to the world, and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, in so much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and just thus save some of them. So in God's wisdom, he is provoking Israel to jealousy by giving us, the ethnoi, some, many of their blessings. And the analogy he uses is a wild olive branch being grafted into a cultivative olive tree. Or the analogy I've used before is um, a rich businessman, landowner, and king has a profligate son who he eventually has to kick out of the house because he won't obey and he's a drunk and he's just carousing. So he kicks him out. And he goes out and he finds a street urchin and he brings him in and he adopts him. And partly to provoke his homeborn son into jealousy, he puts the new kid that he's adopted into his son's room and he gets to play with his Xbox and he gets to sleep in his bed. And the... the, the, the How can he sell the Xbox? <laughs> dude, a lot of 30-year-olds do. Um, so... so um, and so every now and then the kid's walking by his father's house and he looks in and he sees that <coughs> adopted child in his room, sleeping in his bed. That's us. But we need to take it case by case to answer which of the blessings and the promises God's made to Israel are ours. And we need warrant to conclude they are ours. And I think Hebrews 8, so that, in short, that would be my answer is we get from Romans 11 that we are getting some of their blessings and their promises. And then we need to case by case examine which ones are they and not just conclude, if God promised it to Israel, he's promised it to me. Do you want to go more specifically with that or does that answer your question? No, no, keep going, keep going. Oh, I have another question. Do it. Okay. So it also seems like these promises are promises for the kingdom to come. Yes. So it's not exactly like being fulfilled right here in this moment. Like the one that really stood out to me was like, you won't have to teach your neighbor. They already know. Right. And so obviously like when the kingdom is here on earth and heaven and earth are yeah. one, obviously the people there will know God. That will be a place where you won't be teaching. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yes. it seems like a more fulfilled thing in the future. No, no. Let's go back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 30 and 31 make it clear uh, that in the original context, so let me let me try to unpack this and spell this In its original context, what Jeremiah is promising to Israel is concurrent with, occurs at the same time as a natural national restoration and a national exaltation, what we would now call the kingdom. This is what God is promising them, which is part of the reason why you can't take all of this and apply it to us. The tool that God will use in that of giving them new hearts and new minds, he is giving to us, but he's not repeating all the other things here. So I would not say, because what happens is if you're, if you're a covenantalist, if you think Israel is the church and the church is Israel, then all this stuff about land and returning gets spiritualized. And so uh, we'll read this. this. This passage, Jeremiah 31, and the parallel passage in Ezekiel 36, I remember in seminary 
wondering if I was going to go covenantal in my leanings because I certainly was um, Calvinistic in my understanding of, of the gospel and soteriology and I'm benefiting from these guys and I'm experiencing the reformers. And I remember in Keith Essex's class, we got to this reading this just being, okay, no, I'm, I'm some form of a dispensationalist. There's no way. Because I don't know how you can take what Jeremiah 31 says and twist it to not mean there's a future for Israel. Let me just show you. Okay. So, um, so verse 15. Let's pick it up in, in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children, or she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The, the picture here is Rachel in her childbirth. She dies in her childbirth. Is but she so wanted kids, right? She's the one who said, give me children or I die. And God said, yes, um, you can have children and you can die. Um, this, is the, this is the declaration Israel's going off to Babylon. And we know the 10 northern tribes don't come back. That's the end of them. Some, some scattered people will come back. There will be representatives of all the tribes, but there's no restoration for the 10 northern tribes. And so in this announcement of judgment that's come in Jeremiah, he's saying it's like as though Rachel herself is weeping that her children are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. This get... There's a return from Babylon that's coming. Um, then in uh, reading it down a little further, uh, verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah will s with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And this is that kingdom language you're talking about. What's being talked about here of, of prosperity and flourishing and uh, fecundity, lots of children and lots of animals and lots of crops. It shall come to pass, verse 28, as I have watched over them to pluck up, break down, to overthrow and destroy and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build up and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But each Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. For each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Well, Jeremiah is one of those people who the other people were faithless and he's going to suffer the consequences. But, and there are faithful Israelites who are going to suffer the consequences going to Babylon. That, part of the new covenant is going to be, it'll be individual. That's part of the each of them shall know me language is answering this. Um, each person will deal with their own sin. There won't be people who are being punished for the sins of other people, just like there are here. So that sets up the new covenant language, and we read through our passage, and then pick it up in verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be explored, Lord, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. That was the passage for me, by the way, that just made it clear. There is no way God's done with Israel. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant, and then it's as if to say, don't misunderstand, I'm, I'm never going to cast off Israel permanently. Now keep reading. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Notice that formula. Behold, the days are coming. Um, when the city shall be rebuilt... 
for the Lord from the tower Hanel to the corner gate and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill of Gareb and shall then turn to Goa and the whole valley of dead bodies and ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the house gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Those are literal landmarks. And so you either have to conclude there's a future, it has to be future because you, the covenantal guys will recognize the return from, from captivity. And they'd say, okay, that happens under um, Cyrus's decree. And sure, it, it sort of does. But can we say, the end of verse 40, it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Is the land of Israel a peaceful and secure place these days? No, of course not. Um, and so, what do you do with these passages? You either have to say, you've got two options. Either there is a future restoration of Israel that involves land, the land God gave to Abraham, and buildings being rebuilt and walls being rebuilt, or this is all spiritually applied to the church. And no, we know what portion of this the church is getting. We're getting the new covenant, new hearts, the knowing of God, and the forgiveness of sins. They didn't repeat all this other stuff. So, so back, back to your question. No, absolutely. In its context, it's God saying, I'm going to regather you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you dwell secure. I'm going to give you a new... It's just this big list of package blessings. And Hebrews 8 makes it clear, we get this chunk of them. We're, we get this chunk now. Um, I just don't see it in any way. Romans 11 makes it clear we're getting some of them. We're, we're grafted into the, the plant. And I think then you've got to say, is this a blessing we get? And then you need New Testament warrant to say, yes, this is. So it's by citing those verses of Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, I'd say, well, those are blessings we get. And, well, do we get the rebuilt land? And the, did that get quoted for us? I mean, even in the uh, even in Children Obey Your Parents, what, what part gets left off? when Paul quotes it in Ephesians 6, the land, that I may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Even in the Ten Commandments are land promises. And so Paul quotes it. Part of the law of Christ, the law principle we're under, is children obey your parents. And Paul does not quote the land promises because my children cannot expect land in this life if they're obedient to their parents. Now, in the kingdom, we're going to reign with Christ, and there's a sense in which we will, but, but for the Israelites, look, if, you're going to be, if you'll be faithful and you'll be obedient, you're going to dwell securely in the land here and now. And, and so that they can attach land promises even to the fifth commandment. So, do you, you want to go for, okay, Trinity, you, you guys just pass the mic back and forth, we'll do this. Okay, Trinity, yep. Okay, so my father was born to a Irish Catholic woman yep. and a Jewish man. Okay. Um, so he is 50% or 48% mm -hmm. Ashkenazi Jewish. Cool. Do only the grandpa, does only the grandpa get the land? Does my father get half the land? Do I get a quarter? Like what, how do you? No, no. So the, the great question. I told you we go to Zechariah. We're going to go to Zechariah. Here's the short answer. Um, it's a national covenant. And when God gives Israel the land, Israel will be. They are now, but who knows whether they'll remain they will be a national entity. And it'll be people who are part of that national entity. It's not just, I've got Jewish, because Paul makes it clear, I've got Jewish blood in me. There are Jews who are members of the church. What, what we're looking for is spelled out explicitly in Zechariah. So start at Matthew and go back a few pages. Because, um, 
Malachi, the Italian prophet, is a short book, and then you get Zechariah right before. Sorry, okay, that's a, okay. It never. You guys stop laughing, and I'll stop telling them. You know, um, Liz, 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 Liz was, Liz was. I saw. I saw. Okay, we're going to we're going to Zechariah twelve. Um. Zechariah was also another book that really firmly entrenched me in my understanding of a future for Israel, in part because Zechariah is, is precisely time-stamped three times. In fact, turn to chapter 1 just to see this first time-stamp. Um, in the eighth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying... Then jump down to one seven. In the twenty-fourth day of the eleventh month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, this is after the return that Cyrus proclaimed. That's important because Zechariah is going to talk about regathering language. And you can't say he's talking about the return from Babylon because this precise time date makes it clear that's already happened. So, moving forward, if you go to chapter 10, Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. They shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I'll bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I'll bring them from the land of Gilead into Lebanon, till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of trouble, strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. I'll make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. That can't be talking about the return from Babylon because the date stamp lets you know that's already happened. This is a yet future regathering. Okay, chapter 12. This is absolutely uh, stunning. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I get goosebumps. <sighs> Excuse me. Ugh. So, the context of this is the day of the Lord, the day of Israel's trouble. You'll see the day repeatedly, right? So 12.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and formed the earth, founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within. And behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. All who lift it will surely hurt. Verse four, on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic. Jump down to verse six. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot. Verse eight, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse nine, on that day, you get the idea. This is a very particular time. This isn't something played out over hundreds of years. And if you read this thing in its, in its entirety, what you'd see is the nations gather around Jerusalem and it looks like they're done for. And then 1210 is written. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Here you're seeing, I believe, the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. So if your dad's in Jerusalem when this stuff happens, he gets the land. <laughs> Whoever's here when this happens. In other words, God is saying there's coming a day where nationally and very, very quickly in one day's time, 
Israel is nationally going to repent. It's not going to be a remnant. It's going to be the whole people, or at least enough of the whole people. You can say all of them, whether or not there might be one or two people, or whether it's absolutely universal. And that's part of what's emphasized. All of them, from the greatest to the least of them, everyone in Israel is going to go, what have we done? We killed our Messiah. And that people, if you keep reading, um, Jump, jump to 14 where he tells this again from a different point of view. In 12, he tells the siege of Jerusalem from the view focusing on the national conversion. In 14, he focuses on then God going out to fight for them and the establishment of the kingdom you were talking about, Allison. Which again, I don't get how you can get around. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you can make this mean anything other than what it, the plain, simple reading makes it mean. So, so 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. We're going to learn some more details about this day. In fact, the conversion of Israel will happen after the walls have been breached and after people have already been taken away into captivity, some of them. It's, I mean, it really is going to be the 12th hour and 59 seconds and 59 minutes. I mean, it's really down to the line. For I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile. The rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, he put this together at 12, and God's not going to fight for his people until his people mourn and repent and trust in their Messiah. But once they do, verse 4, on that day... What's, what's the point of touchdown for the returning Lord to fight for his people? Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus leave earth from? Mount of Olives. What did the angel say? Just as he had left, you'll see him return. That's cool. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. And the mountain. And you can read through this. The people are going to flee. And I'm just speeding up. Verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And then we read about, you guys ever seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember the dude who's like face melts? I think Spielberg got that from this. I'm not, no, I'm not joking. I think Spielberg, I read this and I'm like, because Spielberg's Jewish, right? I'm pretty sure Spielberg got that from, I mean, what happens when you open the ark? No, read this. Um, verse 12, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot. I'm not joking. I think Spielberg read that and thought that'd be pretty cool to... And I'm going to show supernatural Yahweh judgment on people who open the ark at the end of the movie. I think he got that from that. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord will fall. But anyway, jump down to verse 16. So this is battle. It's not much of a battle. It's just everyone like melting and dying. And then you get a kingdom. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem should go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Oh, look, here's a final situation where Israel is exalted. The nations come and do homage to them year after year. And at least part of the Mosaic law is being kept. The, the, the feast system is, the feast of booths, which was intense. Feast of booths was in... <laughs> so, so, so that... We have more details about when this national conversion will happen. And I'd say, whoever's there as part of Israel gets this. And Paul, even though he's a member of Benjamin, only a faithful national Israel gets this. Individual Jews like Paul can be part of the church. These promises go to a believing corporate national Israel. And Zechariah 12 tells us there's going to be a day when they're, they're down to the last hour and most of the people have fallen and they're going to get it, the blinders can be taken off and they're going to look. I mean, the fact that this is written before the crucifixion, they look on me on him whom they've pierced. 
So is the Messiah distinct from God or is he God? Yes. And they get pierced. Anyway, sorry, I just think that's this remarkable. More questions that make... So whoever's there gets this. Um, that, that's, which is part of my reason why I'd say that I, I don't think it's... it's I don't think it's... Uh, I don't support blind Zionism um, because an unbelieving, covenantally unfaithful Israel should expect nothing but divine curses. I tend to think, from my limited understanding of, of the events, that frequently my sympathies are with Israel as regards to a just claim. In other words, when I hear what was going on and frequently, I'm like, that sounds unjust what's being done to them. But I think you have to take it case by case by case. And then we need to be willing for a there, There's no reason why there couldn't be a case where my sympathies were with the Palestinians, where I thought Israel was being heavy-handed or unjust. They're sinful, fallen people. They're, they don't have a possession of the land until they are faithful to the covenant. God said, if you're not faithful to the covenant, I'll drive you off the land. That's what he did. They're not being faithful to the covenant right now. So whatever claim do they have to the land is not covenantal. Um, so a blind Zionism that always supports Israel no matter what. God doesn't always back Israel no matter what. Not when they're being unfaithful to the covenant, he doesn't. So we don't have any obligation to either. Um, sometimes um, I think we can get so zealous in our defense of Israel that we just think Israel can do no wrong. That's not the case either. Qu questions on that? Anyone want to go further with that? Now, we're going to have a role with that kingdom. That's what Jesus talks about, ruling with him and reigning with him. Like, we, we, we will participate in the kingdom, but our participation in the kingdom as the church is going to be distinct from Israel's participation in the kingdom, which will be to be center among the nations. It's really weird. Even in the new heavens and the new earth, there appears to be, na not there appears to be, there are nations. The gates of Jerusalem are always open. Why? So the nations can come up, which is really odd. Not odd. I was talking to Daniel this week about it. Ethnic distinctions will remain through into the eternal state. Tribes and tongues and peoples will continue. We're not going to be one amalgamous people. In one sense, we will be, we'll be God's people, but nationally, national distinctions will continue forever. World without end, amen. That's weird. Um, that, that's not weird. That's, that's, that's a challenging thought or, whoa, okay. Um, so... Anyway. Good reason to learn a second language. <laughs> there you go. Well, God's more glorified in the diversity of his creation than he would be if we we're all the same. So, um, which, which just gets back to God's glorified in, in gender distinction and God's glorified in national distinction and God's glorified in all these things um, that pleases him. We're not all you know, Star Trek wearing, you know, the same clothes and all those distinctions are erased. That's not a good thing. Okay, we got 10 minutes. Sarah. Okay, so the language used in Jeremiah and in Hebrews is really similar to the language used in Hosea 1. How does that relate? Good question. Hosea 1. Let's go take a look at Hosea 1. Hosea. What verses were you thinking of in Hosea? Um, towards the end of the chapter. 
when it's talking about the names of the children. Mm, okay. What exact chapter? One. So it's not a very long chapter. Let's start in verse four. So Hosea marries a prostitute named Gomer. Um, what? Shocking that name didn't catch on as a popular baby name. <laughs> um, that's true. That's true. What? Why would Hosea? Oh, Gomer, you mean? Okay. Yeah. Okay, um, and then they have kids. She has a kid. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, which means God sows. For in just a little while, I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I shall break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. That's just a rough name. No Mercy, come on in. <laughs> For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I'll save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horse or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people. For they are not my people, and I am not their God. Yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, in which place... And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Are you tying that into, I'll be their God and they'll be my people, not my people, but then, yeah. And if you go back to Jeremiah 31, that's even tied with um, the marriage metaphor of, of Israel as God's wife. Um, go to Jeremiah 31 again. See, part of Jeremiah 31 is not quoted by the author of Hebrews, interestingly. Um, Jeremiah 31, 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So when he says, I'll be their God and I'll be my people, I was reading one commentator who said, really, it's talking about a renewal of that marriage covenant. I'll be theirs and they'll be mine, which is, of course, linking with Song of Songs, I'm my beloved and my beloved's is mine. Um, so, yeah, the picture of Hosea pictures that broken covenant marriage relationship with its ultimate restoration well. So that language of I'll be their God, they'll be my people, I'm going to guess part of the reason um, why the author of Hebrews doesn't quote that portion of this is because it's different imagery. Israel is God's wife, and the church is spoken of as the bride of Christ, which are a little distinct, and he doesn't want to just swap them over each other. I could be wrong, but no. What, what, what are you implying? Yeah. All I'm saying is the two metaphors, he's not, over, he's not making interchangeable and overlapping. It's, it's a metaphorical marriage, right? No? Okay. All I'm saying is the imagery of Israel as God's wife 
does not just get swapped in with the church being the bride of Christ. All I'm saying is that the authors keep those imagery distinct. I'm not trying to draw any further point from it than that. I'm saying we might look at some imagery and say, oh, this is the same thing. No, they, I don't, I'm not aware of any that swap and interchange them. Because Israel's marriage to God is, has different blessings and constraints and rewards than the church's marriage to Christ. That's where it's distinct. Part of that would be the kingdom and, and the land promises. Um, so as far as the imagery of marriage goes, they're communicating different things. All I'm saying is the New Testament authors do not swap them in and out with each other. And it would be really easy to take them and do that. That's all I'm, all I'm saying. No, God is not a bigamist. But five minutes. Anyone other than Don got any questions? No, 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 it's a fair point, Don. It's a fair point. Five, five, yes, Serena. Well, wouldn't that go along with the whole idea of um, God being the Father and Jesus, him giving a wife to his son? Yeah, kind of yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other option would be are the Father and Son married to the same person? Both sets of imagery are problematic, so I'm not trying to harmonize them, just keep them distinct. That's all. If, if you swapped them out, you'd say father and son are married to the same woman, which the Deuteronomy says is an abomination. So, you're not... This is one way of speaking of God's relationship with Israel. There is wife. This is one way of speaking of Christ's relationship with the church. There is bride. They're both true, and the New Testament doesn't mingle them together. That's all I'm saying. If you try to mingle them, you'll either end up with bigamy or father and son married to the same woman, which both, I think, are problematic. Bigamy just for her. Yeah. Big, no, it's, no, it's big on air. But the church in Israel. By, it'll be by on air. It wouldn't be bigamy. The, the gune in bigamy is woman. What? In English, we use it both ways. The woman can be bigamy. No, they can't. Sorry. The gune in big gune, by gune, is multi-wife. A woman can't be multi-wife. I mean, I suppose they probably can now, but um, but it's polyandry. That's the word. It's a real. Look it up. Okay. 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 Sorry. To that point, well, you know, we're grafted into the same tree that is Israel, so like we're distinct. But how actually distinct are we? If we're using that same kind of methodology, like. As a tree, like that's some kind of metaphor. Like, God how distinct is it really? God didn't promise our fathers any land in the Middle East. I'm, I'm, no, 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 that'd be one no. distinction. I'm giving you a distinction. I mean, like, I know that I'm saying not saying that. Yeah, they're the same thing. I'm like, but if you're using the metaphor of a tree, like, we there is some overlap there. Oh, no, 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 no. There's, there's there, huge there overlap. Not, it's not a huge no. distinction. No, no, no. There's huge between, overlap. There's huge overlap, Matthew. No doubt. We need to let the text tell... There's two, there's two errors. One is to assume, because dogs have tails and cats have tails, dogs and tails are the same thing. God's dogs and cats are the same thing. Uh, that dogs was just to address the, the marriage the metaphor, thing. was all. Uh, that, that's, so, you can absolutely show tremendous points of continuity between Israel and the church. But I think the New Testament makes it clear they remain distinct. The other danger would be to so distinguish them. I mean, I've also heard some dispensationalists teach like heaven's going to be segregated. Like there's going to be like the Jewish section and the church section. That the promises to the church and the promises to Israel are so distinct, it's almost like two separate heavens and earths in the, in the new heavens and new earth. Um, and, th and that's erroneous. As, that's 
wrong as well. Um, the, the picture I would see is much, here would be the distinction I'd make. It seems as though in the same way that in Christ there's neither male nor female, yet God clearly has earthly distinction that abides for men and women. Yes? Right. So on earth, men and women relate to each other differently. God's instructions for my wife are different than God's instructions to me. Even though in Christ we are neither male nor female. We approach salvation, we're identical in how my wife and I approach salvation. There's no distinction between us in how we approach salvation. We approach salvation in one-to-one -one the same way. And so in Christ there's neither male nor female. On earth, God's got different marching orders for us. In on earth and in the new heavens and the new earth, I believe God has different promises and plans for Israel and the church. How we are saved and how we're united to him are identical through faith in the crucified and risen Messiah. That's my best attempt to sort of simplify which promises are ours and which promises are Israel's. The ones that deal with the national entity, the land that God gave to Abraham. Let's end in the Abrahamic covenant promise and we'll be done. Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Because we are sons of Abraham, which is another argument I'll hear people make. See, Israel's a church. Why? Because we're called sons of Abraham. You got to read what God says to Abraham. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he promises him, I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now go ahead a little further to, um, where is it? Um, many kings, many nations, where is that? Is that 15 or is that 12? Um... Or is that right here? Father of many nations. Hold on. Just look it up in my phone. Many nations. Many nations. Hold on. Is it Gen Genesis 12 what? Oh, okay. Okay. Um... Oh, sorry, just stay in 12 right there. And you all the families here should be blessed. I would say that God promises Abraham a very specific land. Um, he shows in the land. He marks out its territory. We could, we could potentially, some would argue, covenant theologians would argue, we are sons of Abraham because we are part of that great nation he's making. But elsewhere, I got to look it up. Abraham says he'll be the father of many nations. We could also receive Abraham's blessings by the end of verse three. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, there's a way we can receive Abraham's blessings and yet be distinct from the great nation God's going to make from Abram, who's going to inherit the land that he's giving him. So even in the Abrahamic blessings, there's, there's ambiguity. We could receive Abraham's blessings and not necessarily conclude we're that great nation God's making out of Abram who's going to take possession of that land. We could be just part of the, all the nations, all the families here shall be blessed, which would be what I would say in that. So even in the Abraham blessing, there's distinction. I'll make your name great, and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and in you, all the families here shall be blessed. So when Paul says, we're sons of Abraham, and we're blessed by Abraham, 
it doesn't make it clear. There's two paths ravenous. We're done? Okay. Okay.